Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.19, Sophia, Triumph and Disaster. Last time, we left Sophia and her husband on a ship sailing into exile after they had been driven from the throne by the French Navy and a coup led by former Prime Minister Venizelos in 1917. They had been forced to leave everything behind, including their second son Alexander, who was left to be a puppet king, a figurehead atop the new Venizelos regime, backed by the French. Today, we will begin with her arriving in Switzerland to begin her life in exile, but she won't be staying there for long. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters that keep this show on the road. In particular, I'd like to thank my newest patrons, Louise, Casey, Cassie, and Carly. I am so incredibly grateful to you all for your generosity. If you'd like to join this intrepid band of awesome people, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Exile wasn't kind to Sophia. For a start, she was forever sick with worry for her son Alexander, who was king but in reality was strictly under the thumb of the civilian government. Venizelos, who was now ruling Greece in a fairly authoritarian manner, refused to let her have any kind of contact at all with her son. She knew that he wasn't well suited for the difficult job that had been thrust upon him. Alexander had been the sort of prototypical second royal son. While his elder brother George had been prepared and educated to rule, Alexander was far more at home tinkering with his collection of cars. He was never meant to be king, especially not in this way. 
According to one of his uncles, Prince Christopher, who was with the royal family in Switzerland, quote, Sophia adored her son and fretted out her heart in secret over him. There was one particularly heartbreaking episode when she heard that her son was in Paris and therefore a little less shackled than he was in Greece. At last, she said, I shall be able to telephone him. But when she called, it was not her son's voice that she heard at the end of the line, but that of the Greek ambassador to France. He said curtly, quote, His Majesty is sorry, but he cannot come to the telephone. According to Prince Christopher, quote, Queen Sophia went quietly from the telephone. She said nothing, but the disappointment in her face wrung one's heart. Alexander did, though, manage one act of defiant rebellion when he married the daughter of one of his father's equerries. Though from a good family, she was not the kind of stock expected from a queen. Sophia, in particular, was vehemently opposed, as was Venizelos, but Alexander took things into his own hands and married her in secret. When she wasn't worried sick about her son, she was trying to make the best of her situation. She wasn't interested in imposing herself on her hosts. She wants to live a fairly normal existence. But her position and former life meant that that was never going to be possible. For instance, she was delighted to discover that many of her friends from Britain were also staying in Switzerland. She recalled later, quote, Staying at the hotel were several of my old English friends, whom in days gone by I had known quite intimately. They used to be of my party in the opera. I have danced at their houses, dined with them. One and all, they cut me dead. I shouldn't have minded that, but they did it in the most unkindest way possible. Publicly leaving any room that I entered and staring at me right in the face as they went out. It was not till I picked up some of the English newspapers and learned what they were saying about us over there that I realised the reason for it. Sophia and her husband were still seen as being pro-German, but they had betrayed the Entente by refusing to enter the war that had killed so many millions of soldiers, that they were on the side of her brother, the evil Kaiser. This had been the reason they had been forced from Greece, and they couldn't escape it here, in Switzerland. Meanwhile, over in Greece, Anton backing for Venizelos paid off as he brought Greece into the war. The main opponents were the Bulgarians and the Austro-Hungarians, but the Greek military was in no state to fight. The army was full of officers that were at best royalist and worst pro-German, and its troops were not ready to start fighting against their battle-hardened opponents. This meant that they didn't really commit troops in great numbers until the summer of 1918, by which time the war was basically over. In all, Greece lost only around 5,000 men dead in the conflict. By contrast, the United States, which entered the war around the same time, lost over 100,000 men. Despite their very slight contribution to victory, Venizelos wanted a rich reward for Greece's efforts. In this, he demanded northern Epirus and Thrace in the north, Smyrna, which is in Anatolia, and the Dodecanese Islands in the Aegean, all of which had been formerly ruled by the Ottomans. He also demanded that Constantinople become an independent city-state, cutting it off from Ottoman rule. He got pretty much all of it, except that bit about Constantinople, in the Treaty of Sèvres. But then, with him at the zenith of his power two things happened that destroyed his rule. One was a stupid move by him. The other, well, that was just plain stupid. 
His mistake was to provoke a war with the Ottomans. He thought that they were a husk of a nation that could be easily defeated and further gains extracted. But he, like so many, underestimated the resolve of Mustafa Kemal, better known as Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey. What Venizelos thought would be a quick and easy victory turned into a terrible, unpopular slog. King Constantine, before his exile, had warned Venizelos that war in Asia Minor would, quote, bleed Greece to death. And now he was being proved right. The other stupid thing? Well, the king of Greece was bitten by a monkey. Yep, you heard that right. He was walking his dog in the palace grounds when it was attacked by a pet monkey. Or it was the other way around, the sources differ. Whose pet monkey it was is also unclear. What we do know is that the king tried to separate the two animals and was bitten on the leg by the monkey. The wound became septic and Alexander became delirious. If it had been anyone else, his leg would have been amputated. But it seems that no one had the courage to do that to the king. When she heard the news, Sophia begged to be allowed to see her son. Her request was refused. Prince George, Constantine's brother, wrote of her anguish. Quote, Morals, principles, heart, and every Christian feeling have been done away with by this infernal war. Poor Sophia has been forbidden to go and see her poor dying son, who in his delirium is constantly calling for his mother. It's hard to realise that people can have so little heart. A few days later, he was dead. He was only 27 years old and had been king of Greece, in name only, for three years. Sophia was absolutely devastated. Her sister Mossy, after having visited to console her, wrote to a friend that she, quote, will never get over this loss. It was all so cruel. It will be a great thing if they can return, but what will it mean to her to go back and see the empty house? And to think of all her poor boy suffered during those lonely years is terrible to imagine. This all left Venizelos with a problem. Alexander had no children that could inherit, so the crown should pass to... Well, that was the rub of it, really. Who? Parliament offered the throne to his younger brother Paul, but he refused it, saying that his father was the true king of Greece. This meant that the throne lay vacant, and it became the main issue in a general election hosted in November 1920. These were the first elections since the disputed one in 1915 that Venizelos had boycotted, and he hoped to secure his position in power. Instead, he didn't even win his seat, and his party was defeated by a monarchist coalition. Venizelos was forced into exile, and the new government announced a referendum on whether to recall the king. The Entente powers warned of dire consequences if the Greek people voted in favour of restoring King Constantine. They responded by doing just that, by the slim margin of 10 million votes to 11,000, though that had a lot to do with Venezuela's boycotting the polls. The Entente responded by cutting off all military support for the war in Turkey. Greece would now be on its own. Sophia and the rest of the royal family made their glorious return to Greece shortly after the referendum in December 1920. The streets were filled with delighted onlookers. It was a wonderful moment, but Sophia couldn't enjoy it. She was still grieving for her son, 
and it can't have escaped her notice that she was only being returned to Greece because of his death. She put on a show for the crowds, but those who knew her could tell her heart wasn't really in it. The reaction of the people in Athens was no less manic than it had been when they had journeyed into exile. The streets were a riot of colour and joy. Children sang songs praising the king and denouncing Venizelos. The Parthenon was lit up by an illumination of the crown. One soldier was so crazed that he jumped headfirst into the royal carriage and kissed Constantine's feet, declaring his willingness to die for him. It was a dramatic moment in the history of the young modern Greek nation, and one that was bursting with hope and optimism. But within lay danger. The crowds of people thronging the royal procession wanted different things from their king. Some wanted him to achieve Greece's historic destiny and fulfil the great idea. Others wanted peace after years of war and upheaval. Towing that line would take quite some doing. Sophia's first task after being restored as queen was to prepare for the marriage of two of her children. Her eldest son George and eldest daughter Helen were both betrothed to children of the Romanian royal family. Now, we'll be looking into these in more detail when we look at the life of Queen Maria of Romania, who was a daughter of Prince Alfred, Duke of Edinburgh, but it's worth doing this quick and dirty now. Prince George had been chasing Princess Elizabeth of Romania for quite some time. Quite the handsome and honourable man, he had been taught well by his mother to be a prince in the British style. Unfortunately, that was not the kind of man that Elizabeth wanted. She said of him, quote, God began the prince, but forgot to finish him. As for her, well, let's just say that history hasn't been kind to her character. One historian that I have read called her, quote, lazy, self-centred, prone to jealousies, Elizabeth possessed few, if any, redeeming qualities. The other marriage was between Princess Helen of Greece and Crown Prince Carol. He, too, wasn't exactly the kind of man you'd be thrilled to marry your daughter to. Indeed, he was a man who, at any time of day, you'd be likely to find at the card table or the brothel. While a teenager, he fathered two children with a schoolgirl, with the rather Bond-girly name of Maria Martini, and a stint in the Prussian military did nothing to curtail his playboy ways. He served during World War I, but abandoned his post to marry the daughter of a Romanian general. This marriage was quickly annulled, but they continued to live with each other even as the marriage to Helen was being negotiated. Sophia was adamantly opposed to both marriages, but especially that of Helen to Prince Carol. Helen later wrote, quote, It was my mother who was so upset, chiefly because of the differences of upbringing and background, and also because she was in despair at the idea of losing me so soon after the grievous loss of Alexander. But I insisted, and for some time my mother tried pleading with me and using every argument to induce caution. I little realised then how true were her warning words. Had I listened, I would have been spared years of misery. Sophia's misery was made even worse at Helen's wedding in Athens. The Greek people greeted the happy couple and their restored royals with gusto, but representatives from the UK and France literally turned their backs on Sophia and Constantine. Indeed, Lord Granville, the British ambassador, had been given very specific instructions to, quote, remain in Athens while avoiding all ceremonial, official, or personal relations with Constantine, his court, and his family. 
This was yet another body blow for Sophia, as once again she was being snubbed and embarrassed by the British, a people that she held in higher esteem than any other. She hadn't indeed been friends with Lord Granville for many years, and yet now he was quite dramatically humiliating her. But despite this very show of disrespect, or perhaps even because of it, Sophia and Constantine were raiding the crest of a popular wave. Queen Marie of Romania noted, quote, The love of the Greeks for their king is something magnificent. It is a religion to them. It makes them happy. I am talking of what I have seen and heard. I have travelled three days to far distant corners, and it is Constantine, Constantine, with love and adoration. It was touching and wondrous to hear. But what everyone was about to find out was that adulation from the people was not love, it was a crazed lust. A decade before, the English poet Rudyard Kipling wrote arguably his most famous poem. Taking the form of advice to his son, if is one of the great works of Edwardian literature, and the Greek people could have done worse than to take to heart this stoic advice from it. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. The power of Greek popular opinion was with the monarchy now, but their love was a fickle thing. Venizelos may be gone, driven into exile after his electoral defeat, but his time in office cast a very long shadow. His impassioned speeches on the great idea, and of liberating native Greeks in Anatolia from Muslim rule, were still ringing in everyone's ears, and the war that he had started with the Turks was still ongoing. And now, of course, they were fighting that war without British and French support. The Greeks were outnumbered with stretched supply lines, This would have tested a strong military, and they didn't even have that. With every day that passed, the Ataturk-inspired Turks grew stronger, and the Greeks grew weaker. Knowing that their only hope was to achieve a quick and decisive victory, Constantine himself travelled to the front, while Sophia led on the home front, doing what she did best, keeping the hospitals staffed and supplied. Sophia continued to be in a very low place during this time, her sister Mosti came to visit and wrote, quote, I do not think my sister well. The heat tries her terribly, and all that she has been through tells on her, naturally. She ought to have a thorough change, but there is no possibility of this, and she cannot think of going away until peace has been signed and politics more settled. Another visitor describes Sophia as a, quote, fragile little lady in deepest mourning, her face itself a tragedy of unhappiness. When greeting her guests, the Queen said, quote, You will forgive my not being here sooner, but I spend all the mornings in the hospital, where we have many wounded soldiers. Meanwhile, at the front, things were not going well. Constantine was not the inspirational military figure that he had once been, and his health, which had never really recovered from his dice with death a few years before, did not stand up well to the ardours of military life. He took personal command of the army, winning an initial victory and leading an advance towards Ankara. But that was stopped at the Battle of Sakaria, 
and there followed a great Turkish counterattack called the Great Offensive that saw them win a string of victories, pushing the Greeks back and forcing them eventually out of Asia Minor entirely. When they entered the last Greek stronghold of Smyrna, the city that Greece had won in the peace treaty following the end of the First World War, they massacred the Greek population, indiscriminately killing men, women and children, revenge for Greek killing of Turkish civilians earlier in the war. Refugees poured into Greece, swelling the population of the country by 25%. For a nation that was still struggling from the privations of war and the Entente blockade, this was an added burden it could ill afford. This was all a complete and utter humiliation for Constantine. He had taken over an army that had been winning and oversaw a catastrophic defeat. He seemed on the cusp of realising the great idea, and now it looked like that opportunity was gone for good. No matter that this wasn't the whole story, this was what was believed, and exactly what Venezuela's junior officers in the army had been waiting for. Prince Christopher summed up the mood in the army by saying, quote, People began to remember all the Venezuela's propaganda against him, raked together the still smouldering ashes of the past. They led a revolt of the army and navy, demanding the abdication of the king, this time having no objection for his eldest son inheriting in his stead. 15,000 men marched on Athens, and although Constantine still had soldiers loyal to him, once again he chose exile over civil war. In his notice of abdication, he rather grandiosely stated that he was, quote, happy that another opportunity has been given to me to sacrifice myself once more for Greece. The war that he had warned against, provoked by propaganda he knew to be dangerous and caused by involvement in another conflict he had sacrificed his throne to avoid, had caused his downfall. Constantine once again had to leave the country with his wife and daughters, leaving behind a son to be titular king of a country in the throes of chaos. Sophia's journey into exile in 1922 followed the same path as it had done in 1917, but the reaction of the Greek people could not have been more different. Remember back then that everyone had gone absolutely mad, throwing themselves in front of the king's car and attempting to drag his ship back to shore. Well, there was none of that this time. Few supporters came to see them go, much less to try and prevent them from leaving. A Royal Navy officer who was on board ship with them noted, quote, I was much impressed with the bearing of their majesties during their time on board. Though obviously very tired and overstrained, they showed great dignity and self-control, and made light of the inconveniences with which they had to put up. They had been back in Greece for only a year and a half, and now they were sailing away once again. This time, instead of Switzerland, they headed for Italy, settling in Palermo. While there, they watched in horror as the situation in Greece descended into a febile frenzy of blame and vengeance. Several of the king's old allies were put on trial for high treason and executed in the so-called Trial of the Six. His brother Andrew too was court-martialed and would have been executed, but luckily for him he had powerful foreign connections and was spirited away to safety aboard HMS Calypso with his wife and children, including the one-year-old Philip the future husband of Queen Elizabeth II. Sophia's sister Mossy recalled that the exiled queen, quote, feels quite ill from the shock and horror. I knew all those poor martyrs and saw a good deal of them. They were loyal and devoted to their king and therefore had to disappear. 
You may be asking yourself why Constantine had allowed himself to be driven for his country for a second time so easily. Why had he not put up more of a fight? Well, I think he genuinely did want to avoid civil war. Europe at this time was filled with former monarchs that had tried to hold on and send their countries torn apart by a civil war and revolution. This way, at least Constantine could ensure that his son inherited the throne. But there was another reason, and that was his health. Broken by the stresses of rulership, war and uprising, Constantine arrived in Italy a broken man, and never really recovered. This ill health was clearly a factor in his easy acceptance of his overthrow. He was just too sick to put up much of a fight. The knowledge that all of his former supporters back in Greece were being persecuted for their loyalty to him only seems to have made matters worse. And this only added to the strain under which Sophia was living. Her daughter Helen was with her, and wrote the following back to her husband. Quote, Mama's state simply breaks my heart. I couldn't possibly leave her just now. I honestly do not find her well enough. Her nerves are in a pitiable state, and a mere nothing would cause a breakdown. This suspense is ghastly. We have meals in Mama's salon, not feeling at all inclined to sit in a room crowded with strangers who stare so. It's too, too cruel. On the 11th of January 1923, Sophia and Constantine were set to move from their residence in Palermo to the city of Florence. But suddenly the exiled king suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and fell onto his bed unconscious. A few hours later, he was dead of what Sophia was convinced was a broken heart. She made many overtures back to Greece to ask if her husband could be buried in his homeland, but they were all rebuffed. He was instead taken to the Russian church of Florence, where it was laid to rest in the crypt. Even many of those that disliked Sophia could not help but feel sorry for her now. She had lost her son, her kingdom and her husband in such a short space of time and now found herself to be a stateless, impoverished widow. Her daughter Helen did her best to take care of her mother, but that only put more strain on her own failing marriage. To be fair, marrying Prince Carol had been pretty much a disaster from the get-go, but this only gave him further opportunities for scandal. He continued to indulge his penchant of sleeping with anything that moved, eventually beginning a long affair with a woman named Magda Lupescu. Perhaps Helen thought this would be just another one of his flings, but this was more serious. In 1925, he officially divorced his wife, scandalously marrying his mistress. As she consoled her daughter over her horror of her husband, Sophia heard even worse news from Greece. Royalist elements within the armed forces had attempted to lead a coup against the Venezuelan government, and while King George had not been intimately involved in its organisation, it was clear that it was being carried out in his name. After the failure of the uprising, Greece was forced from the country. The Greek National Assembly abolished the monarchy the following year, proclaiming the Second Hellenic Republic. George went to live with his wife in her home nation of Romania, but that marriage too soon collapsed. Okay, this has got a bit sad and depressing, eh? Well, Sophia survived this terrible time, and adopted the kind of stiff upper lip long associated with her beloved England. Her friend, the Infanta Eulalia of Spain, remarked, quote, Poor, misjudged Queen Sophia is one of the best of women. Her patience in adversity was wonderful, and her stoical philosophy enabled her to regard her life as a state of omnia veritas, 
in which nothing was lasting. She also never lost hope that her son might win back the throne from which he had been forced. Ever since her father-in-law, George I, had died in 1913, Greece had gone through war after war, regime change after regime change, and there was no guarantee that the new Republican government that ruled the country would have any more longevity than those that had gone before it. Therefore, Sophia remained in Florence but refused to buy a permanent residence there, just in case she might be forced at short notice to accompany her son on a glorious return to Athens. Yet though she loved her adopted country, the land that she really adored above all others was still the UK. She longed to visit it again, to go back to the places that she had spent those long summers with her mother as a young girl. Even though the British had played a part in booting her from Greece, not once but twice, and she knew there were large parts of society that still hated her for being the sister of the Kaiser, she still idealised her mother's homeland. In a letter to her cousin George V, she pleaded with him to let her come and retire there. Quote, I am so homesick and dying to see dear England again. I have absolutely nothing to do with politics, have not seen Wilhelm since 14 years, and hardly ever hear from him, so hope that I can give no offence by living quietly and out of the world in some small place if my means permit. I am too old and sad and tired to go out in society. If you prefer my not seeing you, I would not like to put you to any inconvenience. Else, if you could meet me quietly somewhere, it would be a great joy for me to see you dears again after so many long and sad years. She even sought to mend some of the broken bridges with her brother Wilhelm. Following Germany's defeat in World War I, he had been driven from the throne and settled in the Netherlands. In 1929, he turned 70, and all of his surviving family travelled to his new home to celebrate. He'd mellowed a bit, well, a very small bit, in his old age, and greeted her, if not warmly, then at least without hope and hostility. He even remarked to a friend how good it was to see his sisters, if only as an afterthought. This wasn't Sophia's only foreign trip in exile. The plight of her children caused her no end of concern, particularly that of her daughter Helen, but that did not stop her from travelling the continent in her later years, particularly enjoying visiting her sister Mossy and her granddaughter Alexandra, the only child of her late son Alexander. Alexandra, who grew up largely in Surrey, had very fond memories of her grandmother, who she called Amama. In her autobiography, she wrote of the time she spent with Sophia in Italy. Quote, I had a wonderful time with Amama, who adored me and spoiled me outrageously. She was tall, slim, and very elegant. She always wore mourning colours for King Constantine, and the black pale mauve or silver grey of her widow's weeds greatly became her. Throughout this time, everyone that spoke of her comments on her dignity and class. She was an exiled queen, but seems to have never lost her good nature and strong manners, even after everything life had thrown at her. A great example of this came when she had lunch with Ferdinand of Bulgaria. Both were exiled royals now, but they had been on opposite sides during the Second Balkan War. The two of them spent the whole time deep in conversation and carried it on late into the afternoon. When she was asked what it was that they had discussed, Sophia merely said, with no apparent hint of bitterness or reproach, why, old times, of course. Yet those years had taken their toll on Sophia, and she knew that she was living on borrowed time. 
Between 1929 and 1930, she saw many specialist doctors in France and Germany, complaining of painful acidity, nerves and loss of appetite. They treated her as best they could, but she never improved much for long. Eventually, in November 1931, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer, the same disease that had taken both of her parents. She only had weeks to live. Her daughters and sister were told the extent of the cancer, but Sophia was not. The whole thing affected her sister dreadfully. She wrote to her friend, quote, It is all too, too awful. My darling sister is growing weaker from day to day. To witness this is almost more than I can bear. She is not in pain, thank God, and sometimes she is very cheerful, but she cannot understand why she is so weak, a sign that it had been possible to keep the truth from her, for which we are grateful. It is difficult to find the right nourishment, as all food disgusts her, and she often suffers from sickness. All of her children are at Frankfurt, and to be with them and try to help them enables me to fight down my own misery. She managed to make it through Christmas and into New Year, but Sophia eventually succumbed to the cancer racking her body on the 13th of January 1932. Her body was taken to Lyons State at the Great Hall in Friedrichshof, the estate that had been built by her parents and named for her father. From there, it was taken to Florence to be buried in the crypt of the Russian church alongside that of her husband and mother-in-law, Queen Olga. For her children, her loss was almost impossible to bear. Her youngest daughter, Catherine, remembered, quote, The loss of our beloved mother and the agony of the past months was almost more than one could bear, and I am still quite stunned from the cruel blow. My heart is a wound that will never heal. Only time can ease the pains. Having lost both of our beloved parents, life doesn't seem worth living anymore, and one misses them every day more. The only consolation is at least they are happier on the other side, without all the trials and difficulties of this hard life. Mossy was equally devastated. Quote, She is always present wherever I am or whatever I do, as she always was. Life can never be the same without my dear sister. Sophia had never given up hope of her children being restored to the Greek throne, and one of the tragedies of her early death was that she never got to see that come true. The decade following the abolition of the monarchy had been, if possible, even more chaotic than had been under the rule of Constantine and his sons. Governments rose and fell seemingly constantly, with coups and counter-coups preventing any sort of stability to calm the chaos. Seeking to restore some sort of order, a Greek general named George Condylis led yet another coup and arranged a referendum to restore the monarchy. Well, when I say referendum, the whole thing was a staged sham and was approved with 98% in favour. George II returned from exile and took the throne in 1935, but things were still mightily unstable, especially due to the parliament being filled with communists. He therefore endorsed the establishment of a dictatorship under Ioannis Metaxas that could have led to the outbreak of some semblance of order, but then, of course, things were interrupted by the outbreak of World War II. George followed his mother's legacy in favouring the British side of the conflict, despite Greece's strong links with Germany. Indeed, when Germany's Italian allies demanded that they be able to station troops in Greece, George refused and declared war. 
As was so often the case in this part of the war, the Italians rather embarrassed themselves in the field, being driven back by the Greek army, forcing Hitler to send some German troops in to save Mussolini's men. George was driven away again, going into exile in the UK. Despite this, I imagine that Sophia would have looked on with pride at her son standing up for her mother's homeland. Following the war, George was restored to the throne, but not for long, as he died in 1947. His brother Paul succeeded him, meaning that all three of Sophia's sons eventually had a go at being king of Greece. Paul managed the now unheard-of feat of ruling until his death without being driven into exile once, passing the throne on to his son, Constantine II, who was overthrown in 1974 following a reign that had been dominated by a military junta. I think it's fair to say that Sophia was a very unlucky woman. She was in many ways the ideal woman to be a queen. She was conscientious and hard-working. She was a loving mother and produced a number of sons, all of whom at one point became kings. All of her children were well-mannered and, by all accounts, exceptionally well brought up. She had loving parents and came from an incredibly august royal line. But she was also born into a family that, for the most part, disliked her. The German half because she was seen to be too British, the British half because she was too German. She married a man that became a king, who took over a kingdom that was on the brink of tearing itself apart, aided by the machinations of the French and British. Her life had had so much potential, and it would be harsh to call it a failure, but the First World War ruined her chances of being a long-reigning queen, as it would do so for so many other members of her family. And it is there that we will leave things for this week. Next time, we will go back to Blighty and be introduced to Maud of Wales, daughter of Edward VII and future queen of Norway. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.